I am thankful for this opportunity uh, to share a little bit from God's Word this morning. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 7. That is where we will be focusing this morning. My little brother did the uh, scripture reading, and I could have been a bad brother. I could have made him read the whole chapter like we're going to do, but I decided to spare him that fate and only give him two verses. This um, chapter is well known. Um, the first half we usually focus on more. It's about the Lord's covenant with David. And the second half is David's prayer as a response. I actually got this lesson from a class I'm taking at Florida College. It's uh, Dr. Nathan Ward's prayer seminar. Fantastic class. We, uh, it's biblical prayer. We go through the various prayers found throughout the Bible. Context, content, and lessons that we can learn. And there is a lot we can learn from uh, men of faith who have prayed to God. And women of faith. There's a lot we can learn from them and apply it to our lives. And I don't think we do as much as we, we really should. Before we actually get to the prayer itself, it's important to understand the context of 2 Samuel 7. Uh, the first idea is dealing with Dave, David's kingship. David's kingship was seen from the beginning, from the beginning ever since God uh, promised to give him the kingdom after Saul messed up. If you remember uh, the two instances, Saul gives the unlawful sacrifice, and he doesn't follow God's commands completely. And so, from that point, David, or God chooses David to be the new king. But even when God chooses David, it's not easily uh, accomplished. David still has to wait for Saul to give up the kingdom, to eventually die and give up the kingdom. Saul repeatedly tries to kill David on many occasions, uh, throwing spears at him, chasing him for months on end. We uh, at university, the college class is talking about David, and last week we were talking about how David spares Saul's life on two occasions, yet Saul still tries to kill David. Even to the point where David has to hide among his enemies, the Philistines, to escape Saul. The kingdom, the, although God promised it to him, was not going to come easily. And then there's also the idea of Saul's heirs. Luckily for David, Jonathan was good friends with him. Otherwise, Jonathan could have put up a fight for the throne. Could have created this civil war within Israel. Civil war actually does come in uh, the first four chapters of 2 Samuel with uh, Ibashadid. And he provides this conflict for David. Even after David has the kingdom, there's still conflict. There's still um, his rebellious children, Absalom, being one example of that, to where his kingdom's never firmly established. It doesn't come easily. That's the context for this. The second idea is, for the prayer itself, is the context found in the first half. Um, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. We're actually going to read that to get a fuller understanding of it. Starting in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, where the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. For that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with 
all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you, may, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made, for, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this second idea of the context is this fact that God has been working in David's life. God has been behind David every step of the way. He makes a point of it in verse 8 when he says he takes him from the pasture for being a shepherd to actually the prince, to actually being king. God is with David throughout all of this. And he's going to be with him throughout his uh, kingship for his kingdom. God even then promises to make a dynasty of David in verses 11 through 16. Um, he talks about establishing a house for David, establishing the kingdom. David's son will have a special relationship with God. God will call him son, he shall call him father. It's, it's a lot of this covenant relationship that is being discussed here. God will be faithful to David's line forever. This prophecy, of course, is fulfilled in Solomon. We see that um, Solomon will build the temple. Solomon will have his uh, kingdom established, and God will be with Solomon. But, of course, this is fully fulfilled in Christ. It's a messianic promise. So that, the covenant that the Lord makes with David is the context for David's prayer. And we'll read that as well. We never really focus on this half of the chapter because we focus so much on the covenant, and rightfully so. But it's interesting to see David's response to these promises that God gives him. Starting in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. 
And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do, a, do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For therefore, for you, O Lord, uh, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken with your blessings, and shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So, yes, I know it was a long prayer, but it's important to understand and see uh, the fuller implications from it. The prayer itself starts, um, is divided into three different ways. It starts with doxology or praise. Um, it is overloaded with uh, references to God's covenant name, Yahweh, Lord God. That, that signifies a sort of personal relationship David has with God and the fact that David keeps reminding him of this covenant that they have. Um, it, for reference, the Lord God construction is used seven times in this, and it's only used two times outside of this prayer, in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Um, so it just signifies this relationship David has with God and how close uh, he thinks he is and to be able to pray to him in this way. And it's also, uh, the prayer is also filled with covenant terminology. Verse 24, it talks about you, uh, you establish for, your, for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. The idea of there's this covenant between God and his nation, God and his people. And David is, is honing in on that as part of his prayer. There's also the uh, incomparability of God and Israel. Verse 22, David says, there, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so, David is focusing on the holiness of God, the uh, perfection of God, the greatness of God in this circumstance, and using that as a point uh, to, to come to him, to pray to him for that and the, uh, the incomparability of Israel to other nations. Of course, the point isn't that Israel is incomparable, Israel is great on their own. It's all because of God. It's because God chose them as their people. God brought them out of Egypt, and God is still with them. The second point of the prayer is deference. In, in Israel's incomparability, there is no people like Israel because God is the God of Israel. God is the reason why they're made holy. They're a special people. He saved them, he's protecting them, he's keeping them uh, steadfast. David, even when he talks about himself, humbles himself before God. At the beginning of the prayer, he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you brought me thus far? Remember, God had earlier said that he had brought David from being a shepherd, from being so low, to being the king of Israel. David recognizes that himself. David came from a know-nothing family, and he was eighth in line, the eighth son. He should not have been king by any measure, but God chose him. Even if you remember whenever Samuel goes to anoint David, they don't think it's David at first. Jesse, David's father, thinks it's the first son or the first other ones. David's not even there. He's in the field. That's how insignificant he was in terms of earthly kingdom, in terms of an earthly kingdom. David recognizes that in comparison 
to God, who is the creator of all, sustainer of all, Lord of all? How could he, being someone so low, being brought thus far only because of God's grace, ever talk to God this way? The third and final point is the demand. If you notice, David has a bold petition. You see it in verse uh, 25 and 28. He shifts from praise to request. Uh, Verse 25, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And then verse 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. He's being bold here. He's basically not demanding, not forcing God, but asking God to do what he said he was going to do. That's a pretty bold statement. I've never prayed and said, God, you need to do this, essentially. But David knows that God will because God had just promised him that he would do this. And so that is the way David approaches God in this way and prays with boldness. And God is faithful to his promise. God grants it in um, 2 Samuel 8. We're not going to read it, but the first 14 verses, it just talks about the victories that David has against the Philistines, Moabites, Edomites, all because God is with him. God God establishes the house of David and is faithful to his covenant. That's the prayer itself. What lessons can we learn? It's one thing to just read the prayer of David and see how he interacts with God, but it's another thing to apply it to our own lives. First point is the importance of praise in prayer. Every prayer that we've studied in uh, this class at Florida College starts with praise. It puts the prayer in the right mindset. They remember who they're praying to. It's the God of Israel, the God who saved them, the creator, the uh, sustainer of them. It puts them in that mindset to be able to go and continue the prayer to God. It's the importance of humility in, in relation to the praise. Like David started, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you brought me this far? David recognized his position, recognized his lowliness before the Almighty. And that put him in the right mindset when he prayed. We, we, we're the same way. There's nothing that I could do. There's no reason why I should be able to pray to God. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm broken in comparison to this holy, perfect God. And so starting with praise, starting with that humility, puts me in the right mindset to be able to ask from God, to be able to pray to him. God is everything. David is nothing. David, David could have started with a sense of entitlement. He is the king. God made him king. But he doesn't. He reminds himself that he was this lowly shepherd and he's only in his position because of God. And that, that's something we need to do too. We need to remember that we're only able to pray to God because of him, because of his salvation, because of what he's done for us. And this boldness is, David's boldness in his petition is rooted in his humility. It's because he's able, he's able to make these bold claims because he is humble, because he remembers what God has done for him. The second takeaway is the confidence of petition based on God's promises. David was confident that God was going to do what he said he did. And it's because God had promised him previously that he would establish his house forever. Sometimes when we pray, we ask God to do certain things, 
And we always add the little phrase, if it be your will, which is right. We, we don't want to impress our will upon God's. But there are times when we know what God's will is. We know that God will forgive us because he said he would. We know that God will help us because he said he would. And so there, there is a sense of boldness, a sense of confidence we can have whenever God makes this promise to us. Whenever he has said he will do something, we know that he will. And we can pray with that boldness. We need to stop thinking of prayers like this gene in a bottle where we ask for certain things and we get it. We're in a covenant relationship with God. He has promised us certain things, and if we're faithful, he's faithful to us. We need to understand God's will, and thus we can pray with more boldness. And finally, we need to understand that prayer does impact God. Sometimes we, we don't see its full effects, and we may, we may never know uh, how much our prayer affects God and where he acts. But in this circumstance, we definitely saw it. David prayed this prayer to God, and in the very next chapter, God grants the petition. God helps David to establish his house, defeat his enemies. We need to have that same confidence in God. He has, we, our prayers impact him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have us pray if it didn't mean it. He wouldn't ask us to cast our cares on him. He wouldn't ask us to make a petition to him if it didn't affect him. And so we, although we may not know how he will react and what he will do in our lives, we know that he does hear our prayers and he will respond in some way. Now, this doesn't really lend itself necessarily to an invitation um, right off the bat. But if you think about it, if we look back at the covenant, God talks about with David. He mentions that he will... Um, I will raise your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Like we said, this is initially fulfilled in Solomon, but more fully fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Davidic line. He is the Savior. And it's because of our faith in Jesus and because of what he has done for us, that we can pray with boldness to God, for he intercedes with us. And so, if there's anyone here who needs to come forward and wants to start that relationship with Jesus, or who needs the prayers of the congregation here, come now as we stand and sing.